Hi, this is Richard Cheeky, and you're listening to Sonic Perspectives. Rodrigo here, bringing you another interview for Sonic Perspectives. We have the honor today to talk to Richard Chiki, engineer and producer of bands like Rush, Dream Theater, Aerosmith, and many more. Richard, great to have you with us. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. How are you? I'm very good. I, I'm just nursing a little bit of a cold, but, you know, we carry on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me start by asking you, you were in a band called Winter Rose with James Lebrie, and I think Sebastian Bach also sang with you guys at one point. How was your transition from guitar player and composer into engineering? Well, Winter Rose, um, Winter Rose is the uh, exact reason I got into um, engineering because uh, there was, uh, I mean, there were no schools, uh, you know, all of the education that's available now to, uh, uh, to everybody didn't exist back then. Mm. And, uh, I learned how to record because I thought that's kind of what you did when you're in a band. I really didn't know. I had no feedback from anybody. I just knew uh, the records that I really liked to listen to. And uh, I knew which direction I wanted to go sonically. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I would be, uh, uh, I mean, I had been recording myself since I was like 14 years old. So, and, and I mean, those those recordings were uh, were awful, but they... <laughs> But but they taught me from a very young age how to get a, a project, a, something that was in my head, and mm -hmm. get it so it was, uh, get it so that it was something tangible, right? I see. So, so so really the the crossing over uh, the biggest issue is that feeling of being an artist and disconnecting. So when I'm listening, uh, if if I were to listen to my uh, uh, to myself play guitar, I would I wouldn't say. Uh, I wouldn't have it in my head going, oh, you're rushing, Rich. What are you doing that for? I would mm -hmm. be listening back going, the guitar player is rushing. And uh -huh. I was a guitar player, right? <laughs> so, or or if I was singing, I, I, if I would do any vocal, if I'd be doing a, a background vocal, I listen to it, I'm going, sing, vocals flat, even though it's me. And I apply that uh, outwardly. I, I apply that to to James Lebrie and all the other artists that I uh, that I work with, that yeah. it's it's a strict evaluation of what it is and it's not it's not a judgment it's an evaluation of the performance and i think that that's been something that um that's helped when i'm on uh, on the uh production side of the glass mm -hmm. but uh i mean it's one thing to be able to do it but the other thing is to break through as a profession and you know getting the contacts and getting the deals that side of the business how did you break through well um i was pretty excited with Winter Rose to uh, to promote the band to try and get a record deal. That's mm -hmm. that's what that's what Labrie and me. That's what we were trying to do. And I was sending out a lot of recordings to a lot of record companies, right. and I was in their face. I would go right to there was a and M Records was uh, it was a block away from where uh, me and Labrie we lived in a building uh, in an apartment building one floor 
uh, he was one floor below me. So we uh -huh. used to just hightail it a block over, <laughs> over to A&M Records and get in their face. And anyway, so I would start to get calls of... Uh, about the recordings and uh, from the record company, record companies, and they'd say, "Listen, you know, we've got this band, and mm. you know, some of them were, you know, we just we want to do some pre pre production demos. You want to do this, and you want to do that, and then all of a sudden, those uh, those demos were like, well, we really like this. We're going to use it on the record, and then suddenly it's on radio, and then suddenly it's charting, mm -hmm. and really, it it's no different than what it is now. It's networking." And, you know, staying in touch with everybody, much like it's what we all do, what you do, you know, with yeah. all of your any any of this stuff. You you stay, you know, you stay on people and, and you try to maintain a relationship. And if they want to work with you, you know, it's that it's it's an enjoyable experience for them. And that's some one of the things that I, um, I, I I'm really I have a lot of gratitude for is when I look at. You know, uh, like Alex Lifeson or John Petrucci, when they say, hey, what is, what's it like working with me? And they say what a great time they had and how much mm -hmm. fun they had. And, uh, you know, what the atmosphere was like in the studio. I think that that's something that's valuable because it translates into the performance. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So it, yeah, if you have a tough record, there are records that are tough to make and you can hear it. And you have records that are fun to make and you can also hear that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And what became of Winter Rose after James joined Dream Theater? <laughs> Did you guys try to continue in any capacity or? Well, you know, when uh, when James had told me about the, uh, he told me about Dream Theater, that he had this uh, opportunity to audition. And uh, I put together, you know, I got together, I put together all the demos for him and went through all of our photos and put together uh -huh. this little promo pack for Dream Theater. And, you know, we stayed in touch as, as friends. And, um, I, I mean, Winter Rose was one of those things that, you know, I didn't want to be, uh, you know, in a constant state of trying to flog this band. And I was already so busy in the studio uh, mm. with different bands that it's just one of those things that, you know, it went uh, it went by the wayside. We ended up releasing uh, we ended up releasing the album that we did. Uh, and those are all those are all the demos that we were using to try and get a record deal. So really, all, uh -huh. all anybody that hears that is they're hearing demos. So you know any of the uh, any of the assessment done to it, it's like guys, this this isn't even a it's it's not even a real record. This is a these are demos. So some of the songs are yeah, yeah. like they're eight track analog recordings. Uh -huh. you know? So there's not there's not <laughs> a lot to work with there, right? Yeah. So you know we. Uh, 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 James had uh, James had uh, called me when he was I think he was in Italy, and uh, and a guy came up and he said, "Hey man, can you sign my record?" And it was a Winter Rose record. This is the wow. record didn't exist. He says, "Can you sign this?" And you know, Labrie's looking at this thing, going, "What?" And, and the guy goes, "Yeah, man, it's great. Your record's gone gold here." Uh. <laughs> and so he gets on the phone. He's like, "Dude, you know we have a record out and it's gone gold." So we just talked about it we said well we should just release the stuff you know rather than it just being out there we'll release it and at least you know we have some control over at least what it is because you know there are people that are listening to copies of copies of copies of cassettes yeah. and all yeah. sorts of really strange stuff so it's just i'd rather at least for what it is have it out there for the fans yeah yeah and not many many people are aware, but uh, Sebastian Bach was the original singer of Winter Rose, well, right? <laughs> it didn't exist. Sebastian and I we met um, we met on a 
we're we're tanning on a on Cherry Beach out in the east end of Toronto. Right, and, I go there all the time. <laughs> right there you go. Yeah. So we were tanning, and uh, you know he came over and said, "Hey man, got a cigarette?" You know, and <laughs> so we just started talking, and uh, you know I told him I was a guitar player, and he was a he was a singer, and I said, "Listen, I wanted to record." You know, I'm looking for somebody to record because, you know, as much as I can sing, I prefer somebody that's a, a more accomplished singer than what, what I could ever do. Uh -huh. And so that's we were actually more of a, you know, it's like I was putting together the the music and he would come in and sing. And it really he was Winter Rose didn't exist until after Labrie and I started to work together because uh, James and I, um, we recorded uh, a couple of demos we record a couple of demos and then we said let's do a band so the, so for uh for sebastian bach you know we had done a lot of songwriting and anytime he had got a uh you know anytime he got it like a little uh bite um from from a band you know off he went you know and and went work with them they came back we did a little bit more recording and then you know finally once he uh uh he joined uh Skid Row. Uh, Skid Row, and then we uh, then we did a little bit of recording uh, at uh, at Electric Ladyland uh, while he was in Skid Row, and I I really haven't seen him since. Right. Okay. And uh, after James left Winter Rose, uh, uh -huh. you there was a gap in there be between the collaboration of of the two of you because you only worked together in the dramatic turn of events, and you did a few of his solo albums as well, right? Uh, yeah. The first time I worked with him since. Uh, Uh, since he joined Dream Theater, uh, I did uh, Elements of Persuasion with him. Mm -hmm. uh, I did Elements of Persuasion. And uh, and then after that, I think it was, uh, I just did some uh, technical, just some repair work. Uh, because there was, a, like, there were technical issues with ticks and crackles and pops and mm. uh, in the recording, of the live recording. And I ended up, he called me saying, listen, can you help fix it because it's not like now where, you know, everybody, everybody has pro tools. Now it was a really, it was a rare thing then. And, uh, so, you know, that's where we sort of struck up the, uh, the relationship to start, uh, doing work again. We've always been friends, you know, anytime, um, we've known each other for so long that, you know, he goes off, he'll do a world tour, you know, we'll do an email once in a while. And then when we get on the phone, it's just like, we never stop talking, <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of nice. thing where you, you have yeah. those friends, right. And you, and that's, that's, that's a relationship we have, you know, sometime he'll be busy doing something and, you know, or I'm busy and all of a sudden it's like, Hey man, you know, and we just yeah. pick up with just, just like, you know, it's just like when we were in a band together. So, so it's cool. awesome. Yeah, well, I interviewed him and it lasted like 45 minutes to an hour. He wouldn't stop talking, but anyway, <laughs> he's that kind of guy. Very generous in his interviews, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that uh, the fans have sort of complained about a little bit in the last four or five albums of Dream Theater is the drum sound. Uh -huh. uh, I'm sure you're aware of how critical they are about this, but uh, particularly the snare sound, right? Can you comment on that? I mean, what's the difficulty that... Uh, have there or because there's been a change in approach from album to album right there you know what i think with all artists there's a there's a change um there's a change for from album to album for for all artists mm -hmm. uh, you know uh except for well even you know i was going to say except for ecdc but <laughs> you know what <clears throat> i i take that back because they did go through quite a bit of changes uh 
you know, in the post. Yeah, uh, in the one Brian joined, yeah. Yeah, and but and then after that, you know, they had a little bit more of an '80s vibe, and you know, yeah. so they, you know, they kind of they kind of shifted around a bit. Um, you know, as far as the complaints go, it's uh, first. I I I think it's one of those things that um, you know during the production of the album, uh, during the production of the album, that um, from a team point of view, that there wasn't there was an issue as far as the. Uh, uh, as far as as far as the drum kit goes, you know, just so you still just get, um, I did some remixes for images and words, and there there are no real kick and snare on the record. All I had is ticks, and we had to uh, when I was doing yeah. it for uh, I can't remember what game video uh, video game um, uh, video game it was. I can't remember if it was Guitar Hero. Mm. Anyways, but you know when you get that sort of thing, you know that's something that is a very sampley uh, record from a drum yeah. point of view. But, you know, it's also one of those things that seem to resonate with the fans. Mm -hmm. And while there's that issue of saying, well, I don't like the drum sound, I don't like this, I don't like that. A lot of people saying, you know, there's a lot of great songs and performances on the record. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, at the time, um, if I were to say, well, I want to, you know, I didn't produce the record. If I would produce the record, I would go one direction or another. Um so it, it's one of those things that uh, it's it it is a collaborative effort from uh, from the producer to the engineer and and working backwards. So um, you know I, I think the issue is that the album didn't resonate with the fans uh, the way you know that would have hoped it would have resonated with fans. Mm -hmm. And I, I think really that's where it has to start. That but that people will uh, you know if if they feel it. If they feel the album, um, then you know you you have that you have those magic moments, and I think something like images and words is a great example of that. Uh huh. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you touched on an important point, I think, because when it comes to establishing roles in a recording session, I know some producers are producer slash engineer, uh, others are producer producer. Right, and just simply looking at the end result. Uh, have you experienced? Have you had experiences with both these types of work ethics in the? That's a great process? question. That, that that's a great question. Um, I I don't know if you're aware of a band that I uh, finished up uh, at the beginning of this year called Pyramid Theorem. Oh yeah, I know these guys. Yeah. Great. So yeah. if you listen to the Pyramid <laughs> Theorem's latest record, um, that's that would be a project that I did production for. Mm -hmm. And I had done a, a project, an all-instrumental progressive uh, artist named uh, uh, Into the Great Divide, instrumental mm -hmm. with uh, Mike Mangini playing. And those, those, both of those records are very progressive and sound very different than a Dream Theater record, right? Yeah. And, you know, for, uh, for me to be involved, um, let's say in, let's say looking at a band like, like Rush, uh, to be involved with Rush, uh, they would have, uh, let's say for the records I worked on, Nick uh, Rasky Linux was producing. Yeah. Right. And so it's not my job to evaluate uh, performances based on like to basically do what the producer is doing. My job is to capture, capture the audio, iron out any technical problems, right? Iron out any technical problems and you know, try to keep the vibe 
nice and light in the studio as much as as much as I can. Uh-huh. And so I I'm always changing hats, right? So if I'm doing something where I'm going to mix a record, I'm going to do some uh, preparation uh, for myself as I'm recording. Mm-hmm. Um, if I am going to be producing, well, I also make uh, I'm going to be making calls uh, for the uh, that have to do with the songs and to pull the performances out of the, uh, out of the artists. Right. right? Yeah. So my, my hats are always changing. So, and so for, uh, uh, for my work with dream theater, uh, you know, I was very aware and respectful of John, uh, John's, uh, position as producer. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, just stay, stay clear of the, uh, of the performances, except for vocals when, uh, because I would typically do those with uh, James alone. Okay, so you did those uh, here in Canada, right? Yes, yeah. For the most part, we tried. Uh, we tried uh, for the uh, uh, for the uh, a dramatic turn of events. We t- we tried to do some vocal work in uh, in New Jersey. I flew down. Uh, <laughs> I flew down to Long Island to uh, uh, to try and track vocals, and. Uh, you know, James just wasn't feeling it there. So we, we flew back the next day. Mm-hmm. We went down, we flew back, and then we cut all the vocals uh, at, my, at my studio. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of perception, uh, at least from, from the fan side, that uh, albums that you record with everybody in the studio, they sound more organic, more real, more authentic. Um, do you have anything to add to this discussion, for example? Which record, let me ask you, so which records would you be talking uh, about? Not one in your portfolio, but for example, when they talk about the albums in the 70s where the whole band flew together and traveled together to a studio yes. or to a remote location. Mm-hmm. Like when Rush did those those albums in the studio, for example, or even before that, those American bands like Grand Funk Railroad, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nowadays, you know, with people being remote and having technology available in favor of them that you can do pretty much anything right um we um it it's not necessarily a uh, a production call uh, mm-hmm. as far as um as far as recording that way mm-hmm. uh there are it's also the artists themselves uh to go and say um uh, to do entire takes, like, you know, um, Xanadu, uh, Xanadu is uh, the first take of an 11-ish minute song. It's the first take that the band did. And um, if it wasn't the first take, uh, if it wasn't the first take, then let's say, look at, say, La Villa Strangiato. Yeah. Uh, La Villa Strangiato is not, uh, is not a continuous take. Mm-hmm. Right, because it is a long, really grueling song to do, yeah. and so you can imagine if you're doing that and you're at, uh, you're in the last thirty seconds and you make a gaff, you make a mistake. Somebody makes a mistake. It's like, okay, no. guys, let's go back <laughs> to the top and do that again. Yeah, right. And, and it's one of those things that, um, the recording methods on top of it. Well, well, I, I, I'm happy to record if if a band wants to. Uh, to record, um, if they want to record all together, I'm I'm fine with uh, I'm fine with going down that road and recording that way. I typically, um, if you've seen any of the 
uh, Dream Theater videos uh, for the last uh, for the prior two records that I worked on, mm. you would see that there are stations set up for everybody in the studio. Yeah. So so there's uh, John's guitar is always set up, bass rig is always set up, drums are always set up. Uh, uh, we did have a vocal booth set up for for James if he wanted to sing there, and there was an acoustic guitar station, and of course Jordan's keyboards were always set up in the studio. Uh -huh. So that at any given moment, we could record anything we want. So it, we could come in and, you know, at the end of the night, say, John, and say, OK, guys, uh, you know what? We're going to kick in and uh, I, I think I'm going to do a, a rhythm guitar for X song tomorrow. And, you know, we would walk in and just say, couple ideas he wants to lay down first. So we would just do it 90 uh -huh. degrees and go off and do that. It was also possible that if the band had an idea... Uh, that we'd be able to say, great, let's all sit down. We just arm all the tracks, and we we can record an entire performance of everybody if we wanted to in one take. Uh huh. Right. So, and that's uh, entirely uh, that was something that's entirely possible, and we did that for. And I really can't remember what the Russia uh, track was. Um, um, Malignant narcissism. Oh you know? yeah. Malignant narcissism was a live off the floor. You know, Nick mm -hmm. came in and said, dude, we got to record this. Go. <laughs> so it was just arm everything and, yeah. you know, yes. and rock. And that so that that track is actually a live off the floor. Boom. One shot. Yeah. And they wrote in the, in the studio, too, as far as I know. Uh, they wrote it there like in the spur of the moment and say, let's push record. record. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It was actually uh, Ged uh, for Malignant Narcissism. Ged had this uh, riff he was playing on a... Uh, a bass that uh, Fender had sent him. He was just trying it out, and Nick was like, "Hey, what is that?" And and that was it. It just went together, and the you know they just hammered it out instantly. And and you know what? I I don't think that there's any one method of recording. You know, to to say, well, this method's organic, so it's better than that method. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, Beatles overdubbed. Beatles played. You know. <laughs> Beatles overdub records, they did pretty yeah. well, you know, uh, you know, other bands, they do stuff live off the floor and they do well. I think if we just go back to the original thing that I said, you know what, if this resonates with listeners and they, the emotion translates to a fan, mm -hmm. job done, job yeah. done. No, there's no rules one way or another. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, I know you were involved with Rush when R30 came out. That was the yeah. first time you associated with them. Uh, what kind of stories can you share about working with them for so many years? <clears throat> I got um, I wanted to work with Rush for uh, uh, for quite a long time. I, mean, I was a fan for a long time, and uh, uh, you know the timing just wasn't there for us uh, for us to connect up. Mm -hmm. And um, I got a call from a friend of mine who worked in the Rush office, and he said. Uh, there was a uh, there was a charity event for a tsunami the tsunami that happened in 2004, mm. and uh, Rush was going to be contributing. Uh, they were going to be contributing a few uh, performances uh, to the charity event. So a buddy of mine called and he says, "Listen, you know they uh, the studio's got a pop engineer booked for the studio, and uh, yeah, we don't think that's uh, we don't think that's the right thing. Do you want to do it?" So I I'm sure <laughs> immediately yeah, I did it. Yeah. So uh, they did. Excuse me. They did closer to the heart, mm -hmm. and uh, ended up being an 18, 18 hour day of uh, of uh, working with uh, getting the song done. But you know, I we had a great time. Uh, uh, Al 
uh, Al and me, we were just we were laughing our faces off the whole time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just felt that there was great chemistry. And, uh, you know, Al and I stayed in touch. And a few months later, he called and just said, you know, we've tracked this R30 thing and we don't have anybody to mix it. So, um, you know, do you want to come down and see if it's something you're interested in? That's what I love. They, they were so humble. It's like, do you want to see yeah. if you're interested in working with us? <laughs> yeah. Hmm, let me think. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And how would you compare the roles of Gary, Alex, and you in the studio? I mean, who's the most obsessed with sound? Most obsessed with sound? Well, you know what? They're all obsessed with sound in, um, in one way or another. Mm. So, um, I mean, certainly, uh, certainly Neil has uh, uh, a way of looking at his kit and the way he, uh, you know, the way he assesses his drum sound and, mm -hmm. you know, no drum samples. He's very make my kit sound good and leave it alone, right? <laughs> which is which is exactly, you know, what what what's done. And, uh, you know, Ged, uh, you know, Ged is one of those things where he's, you know, he's sonically he's looking at his bass he's looking at his vocal he's looking at keyboards so you know he's got a pretty wide spectrum and 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 al is al is uh you know he's mr he's super layering and you know he really he puts stuff together that um you know all of a sudden it just snaps it, these bits all snap into place and it goes oh it's rush you know <laughs> it's one of those things that you know as a as a listener for a long time you know i never really you know, I had things in my head of what I thought they did in the studio, but the uh -huh. way they worked in the studio, you know, the way, way they would assemble stuff, all of a sudden, you know, it was just like Lego, you know, and you're going, what right. are they making? And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's Rush. You know, <laughs> it has that vibe all of a sudden. And it was very, it's one of those things where it's, it's very sudden when it would come out, you know? Right. So it was really, uh, so they were all obsessed, but in their own, in their own ways. I see. Yeah. And uh, was there any kind of direction from the band uh, about the remixes of 2112 and Furrow to Kings that you did? As in, we want this or that side of the music to be more apparent this time, or warmer? Okay. Or... okay. Those, uh, <clears throat> all of those, uh, uh, the sur those are the surround remixes. Yeah. Uh, the surround remixes um, were to not reinvent the wheel. So mm -hmm. it wasn't... Um, like if you were to listen to there, there was a remix done uh, of uh, Aerosmith of Sweet Emotion, and they, mm. you know, they put samples on the drums, and you know, oh. they really, they really reefed it up, and it, you know, it sounded like like uh, for for then, it sounded like modern. It was is a, a modern reinterpretation of um, of the mix, which is not the case here. It was taking mm. the uh, the original mixes and trying to be true to them as much as can be done when you're putting stuff into a, a new three-dimensional spectrum, mm -hmm. right? And to, uh, and, and to maintain that, um, that vibe, which, I, you know, I think for something moving pictures in surround, I think that that's one of the, in particular, one of the better, uh, you know, the really strong achievement of that, where it's, it, it is a strong representation of the original, but there's a few subtle changes. I know in, I mix signals in uh, 5.1 for the uh, uh, for the sector box set, and you know Al had mentioned to me he said you know for subdivision 
I always hated that my guitar was so quiet. He turned it up a bit, you know, and that was something that, you know, we added some meat to his guitar and turned it up a bit. And, you know, so for, uh, uh, for signals, it's, uh, it's different. And in, in the Atmos, um, I had recently mixed, um, limelight and moving pictures for, uh, uh, Amazon's, uh, inaugural, uh, release for, uh, uh, for Atmos. And mm -hmm. so th those songs, uh, those songs came out, uh, a little while ago, and they're the same idea where it's a an interpretation of the original mix, but of course with Atmos having the speakers overhead, you know it's in complete uh, complete three dimension. Wow, th three dimensional sound. So it's yeah. it's pretty wild sounding. Amazing, yeah. yeah. And I think uh, Presto in particular and Roll the Bones were two albums that uh, the Rush guys said they would like to redo or re-record altogether if they had a chance. Wow, really? Uh, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't tell me about it. That would be. <laughs> yeah, I think Presto in particular. They wanted to re-record, not just remix, re-record altogether wow. because they weren't happy with how it came out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is there a chance that uh, you'd be involved in a, at least in a remix of those or? Well, you know, I still, um, I still have a uh, a great relationship with uh, uh, with Al and and with Ged, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, we're we're always in. You know, I, I'm in touch a lot with Al, and we we talk, you know, about about things. But you know, it's not just uh, it's not just the band wanting to release anything. There's record company. There's there's a lot of, you know, there's yeah. a lot of steps involved to, uh, from something to go from beyond the, uh, you know, the idea of us, you know, getting together as as friends, saying, oh, that'd be great. You know, yeah. and there's there's all of the viability and the expense of doing it. Yeah, and and that's something that uh, that has to be uh, has to be considered. And you know, for me, it's uh, that's generally not part of my conversation beyond the well. This is how much time it'll take to do the audio, and uh, this is how it could be done, mm -hmm. and this is what I think it might cost, and uh, you know, then there's all the stuff after that, and that's that's out of my hands, and it's kind of. You know, yeah. I, you know, I think that repurposing any of the music that's uh, that's uh, repurposed for fans and they have a chance to enjoy it in in different ways. You know, I, I think that for people that like, uh, like like Rush or like Dream Theater in one particular way, they like it in this this way. I yeah. think that that exists for for all those fans. Mm -hmm. And I, I, a lot of there, a lot of new possibilities with technology, to take advantage of these new presentations and enjoy music again. You know, it's really no different than you know when people, uh, you know, album sales started to drop off, and then all of a sudden somebody, you know, CDs came out, and then there's yeah. this super portable, robust way, and you know everything was rejuvenated, and people were listening to music more than ever. I think any any presentation that gets people to listen to music is is a good presentation, and if people yeah. don't like it, you know what? It's okay. You don't have to like it. Just, <laughs> you don't have to, right? If somebody says, "I just like it this way," I like my band this way. That's yeah. good because that already exists for those fans to enjoy over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, one curiosity I have, uh, have you seen any example of artists going to extremes to fight for their vision of the mix? Like, I'm sure you heard the stories of Ronnie James Dio, who would go, he would go to the studio at night to pump up his vocals on, on the Sabbath albums. <laughs> <laughs> um, for a, uh, for, for mixing, um, you know, I, I think that there are, um, There are, I have examples for both of the, mm. um, I have examples for both sides for you that, uh, you know, where I've um, done a mix for, um, say for uh, for Rush, I, I did a mix for Rush, uh, like I did a, a song called Caravan, the single version of Caravan, and I tried to mix it, um, Nick had asked me to mix it uh, in Nashville, um, And I was wanted me to mix it on this old Neve console, and I, I just I was working on. It. I'm going. This just doesn't sound right for me, <laughs> and I kept struggling with it. It was like I was in two and a half days, went in, told the band, told the producer. I said, I can't work on this console for mixing. <laughs> We tracked on it. It was fine. The con. It's not the console. It's me working with the console. Said, What do you suggest? And so I need a I, I need an SSL. So it was an SSL. Uh, Uh, console uh, at a studio just outside uh, of Nashville. Went there four hours later. Uh, band comes in. They listen to it. Went. Song sounds great. Let's go eat. <laughs> do you, do you see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. But, but they say, "Do you have any comments?" They went, "No. Sounds uh -huh. great. We're done." So <laughs> there's mixes that are that easy. And then you know we did uh, uh, for the astonishing. You know, we did so many recalls of mixes where, you know, John would hear certain things and go back and, you know, he had a vision of what the story was and, mm -hmm. you know, wanted to have the mix, uh, you know, when, you know, you'd have guys, uh, you have some of the characters fighting with swords and, you know, I want to hear this more, I want to hear that more. And we would go back and recall and recall and change. So it, you know, it, it changes all the time according to what the artist's vision is. I see. And the yeah. Neve console that you mentioned is the one that you use for Into the Great Divide, right? Well, it is the same. Uh, it is a similar model of console. Okay. Into the Great Divide is uh, is a uh, the legendary console that Dave Grohl has at his place. Yeah. And it it is a similar similar model, mm -hmm. um, but the uh, Into the Great Divide was mixed uh, at my studio in Pro Tools, but we tracked it on. Uh, We tracked it on Dave Grohl's console. We brought okay. Mike out from Boston. We went out to uh, went out to LA and tracked the uh, uh, we tracked the, the drums over at Dave Grohl's place. Yeah, I spoke yeah. with Zach uh, Zach Zalen, right? The guy yes. who everything. He was pretty yeah. happy about it. Yeah, he was stoked oh. to work with you. Yeah, he's an, he's an he is an amazing musician. It's crazy. He's yeah. this entrepreneur that uh, he cold called me and. Uh, <laughs> I just started talking. I started chatting with him, and there was just something about the guy. He was like very. I mean, you spoke with him, right? So he's very uplifting, yeah. right? Yeah. Very uplifting and very energized. And I, I was like, you know, hey man, do you want to have a do you want to have a coffee and get together and talk more? And so, uh, you know, I was out in L.A. at a at a trade show, and I got together with him, and we hammered together the whole into the Great Divide concept. Uh, you know, by the end of the day, we were. Boom, we were moving forward. And it's just, he's so talented. He's entrepreneur, but like, just, you know, I went back to his place and he's like, 
starts to play me some of the stuff he has and start mm. playing guitar. And I'm just watching him going, you don't play for a living. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. How amazing, great he is. Right? Yeah. Crazy. He's yeah. crazy. Super talented guy and really yeah. great. Really, really a, 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 like a great person. So, yeah. you know, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about your work with uh, Aerosmith and Mick Jagger, which I think both albums happened more or less at the same time. God is in the doorway and just push play, right? Just one after another. So uh, <laughs> one after another, we finished. Um, we finished uh, just push play, and I flew. I was living in LA at the time. Mm. Uh, we, I flew back from Boston back to. Uh, back to LA, and I think it was two days later. I was working with Mick Jagger, so they were they were immediately back to back. You know, <laughs> that was a good year for you, 2001, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that was a really good year. So it, it ended up. Uh, I'm still in touch with uh, uh, Matt uh, Matt Clifford, who's the uh, he's the current keyboard player for uh, uh, for the Rolling Stones, and mm. we're st we're still in touch to this day. So that uh, that really uh, that sparked uh, some great friendships, and you know I really can't, you know it's it's such a privilege to work uh, with artists of that magnitude, and to see that you know you take a uh, you know the, with the amount of progressive and metal singers uh, that that I work with that you take somebody like Mick Jagger who is a, yeah. a complete polar opposite, and he is what I would define as a stylist, where mm -hmm. you know he just starts to sing and he's instantly recognizable and he has this uh, window of performance that he knows how to put himself in and the mm -hmm. control that he has is so incredible that uh because it's recallable instantly recallable and yeah. you know when i when i was uh, told how he likes to uh record Uh, you know, I was told what microphone he uh, he had to use, and and uh, the vocal booth, and the type of rug he needed in the vocal booth, and then the size, and the size of the vocal booth was it was pretty big, like nine by twelve or ten by twelve feet, to be uh, cornered off, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, God, why does he need so much space? And it's like because that guy, when he gets behind the mic, he's grooving, you know, and it would be, you know, he'd be totally laid back, totally laid back. And he's like, well, you know, I think I want to do the first verse again. You know, and he's totally laid back. And, you know, a hit space bar and it would, you know, the song would start and boom. He, it's just like he's on stage in front of 70,000 people. Wow. Totally doing his thing. Right. And just comes up and just total what you see live. He's in the studio just ripping it. Right. And then all of a sudden we get to the end of the verse. He starts he goes. Well, I think that was pretty good, but I, I like come in and listen to it. So it was just literally, it was like a switch. Click it on, rock okay. star. Click it off. You know, so yeah, amazing, amazing. Wow, wow, yeah, incredible. Yeah. yeah, I do have one request from a friend of mine, which is uh, to share your memories of working with uh, Jeff Healy. Wow, Jeff! I yeah. know. Rest in peace. What a what yeah. a guitar player, right? Mm -hmm. What a guitar player. Insane, so, yeah. Yeah. So what do you want to know about Jeff Healy? I mean, what it was like to work with him. I, I think he did one album or more than one with him. Or I, I we, worked together, uh, we worked together uh, on a one, two, three, three records and three, three studio records, if I remember correctly. Three studio mm -hmm. records and then um, a bunch of live stuff we did as well, plus some movie 
submissions okay. and kind of starting to lose track. It's a long time ago. <laughs> Rodrigo, what are you doing to me? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So he was, you know, it, it was incredible that uh, he was this super, uh, super humble guy that would just sit and, you know, when he picked up his instrument and he just put it across, put it across his lap and he would have this reach that is, you know, playing this way, it's just not possible to have the reach, but he would have this reach and play with his thumb and his pinky. So he'd yeah. be doing these riffs that were impossible to play in a standard position. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, he would really play living on the edge when he'd be playing, he'd be trying things. And when he would uh, go and miss a note, he would milk it and he would bend the string so hard until he would put it into a relevant note for the song. So you would just okay. feel this angst of the guitar, of the stress on the guitar, because he would bend like to clench, right? It's a lot, wow. you get a lot yeah. more strength clenching the strings than pushing them away, right? Yeah. So there's all, all of these things that, that, he, that he would do, and he, and he was a great singer. A great he was, singer. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. A, another guy that was immediately recognizable. You know, and just immense musical knowledge that he would translate to the instrument. And, you know, he was a guy that uh, when I started working with him, you know, the uh, uh, Joe uh, Rockman, the bass player, took me aside and said, you know, uh, Jeff doesn't want you to acknowledge that he's blind. <laughs> wow. He says he doesn't want you to acknowledge. And, mm -hmm. and, and I, I understood and respect that. I, and mm -hmm. I, I, at that point, I hadn't met him yet. That was like the day before I met him. But, you know, when I would when we'd be working together, we worked on a record with uh, uh, Joe Hardy, who's another spectacular producer. And, and, you know, Jeff, we'd be having dinner together and Jeff would be talking to band. Uh, he would just say, hey, anybody watch that uh, show last night? And he'd be going on about the show and the stuff that he would pick up by listening to it. Uh -huh. it's, it's as if he watched the show. Really, wow. it was quite, quite incredible. You know, and he would, you know, he would pace. He knew his way around. Uh, around the band, uh, the house and the studio that, you know, he knew it was uh, 11 steps from the uh, from the wraparound staircase to the studio door. And he would book it. He like he's like right there, you know, and the rules are don't leave doors half open because, you know, he has his hand out just in case. But, OK, you know, he's he's motoring. Right. Wow. So, so he would know his way around with, you know, have you just have to have his stuff set up the way he wanted it. And. Mm -hmm. And he and he was just he was an amazing uh, an amazing musician you know and it just wow. every single time I would watch him it would just be like is mind blowing as a guitar player. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. By the way, yeah. yeah. Um, and what other projects are you currently working on? Or are you looking forward to in the near future? <clears throat> well, I'm I'm doing some catalog work right now, and I can't really mention catalog work that'll I can't proceed. A band's yeah. press release, so absolutely, I, you know, yeah. I, I'm I'm doing some some catalog work. Um, you know, I'm always I'm always looking for young bands like you know in Pyramid Theorem. When they showed up, I was so blown away by their uh, musicianship and you know how they wanted to live on the edge musically yeah. and to not be concerned about trends. And I really uh, I really respected that about the band. And uh, when we uh, when we talked about working together, uh, you know, when we were saying, you know, let's do an 18 minute song. It's like, yeah, yeah, we're <laughs> yeah. going to do that. And they, they were saying, well, let's put it first. And it's like, 
All right, let's do that. And, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, for to throw an 18 minute song to a, to a, a record company uh, right now. Yeah, <laughs> they're, pretty, they're pretty scared. Absolutely. You know, they, yeah. it, it, but I I, you know, the musicianship is really undeniable. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm I'll always looking for them. people that want to express themselves. How did you meet them? I met them, you know, I was, my first concert here in Toronto after moving from Rio, I, I was checking out uh, Faith Warning, and they were uh -huh. the opening band. And as soon as they joined us, they entered the stage, you know, the bass player had his Rickenbacker and a Can Canadian shirt, and I was like blown away, you know, he sings so well, and the songs are great. But this one that you've just produced and mixed, I think it's a step above from the, from his previous two records. Okay, so, so short story about that. So they, we got together. So mm. we got together and, uh, you know, they had sent me songs from uh, uh, songs from their uh, last record. And when I listened to their last record, I, I told the band, I said, you sound like two different bands. You Van know, Halen just, and Rush, right? <laughs> well, yeah, they sound like Van Halen. It's actually a really good combo. It's like the Van yeah. Halen, you know, with the chick videos and the, you know, and then there was this Rush and, and some stuff that was a little bit darker. Yeah. And I said, I said, well, which band do you want to be? Right. And, and then I went, because if you want to be the uh, you want to be the sort of the 80s Van Halen band, I don't think I'm the right guy for you to do this. You know, that's not I'm not going to be able to do my best work for you. And so it took I don't know how many months, maybe six months of us going back and forth. And they started to write material and the material was really complex and really, uh, uh, they they just sort of took all of the uh, the pop sensibility, and they went, you know what? We're going to focus on being a great progressive band, and then, uh, you know, it, when when we can connect with our fans, you know, that's how you get something that's a uh, that's how you get something that's going to be a single, mm -hmm. you know, because a fan, you know, fans resonate with a particular song, that's going to be what makes it a single. Not that it's written to be a single, yeah, right. Those those two, right. The end result it can be kind of the same, but the means to get there is very very different because one of them you don't give a crap whether you know a record company says, "Well, we need a three minute song." It's like, "Well, here's an eighteen minute one. How's that?" <laughs> right. Yeah. But you know, if enough people like a song that's five, six, seven, eight, nine minutes long, you know, it's going to get played. You know, here's a band that they don't have a record deal yet. And, you know, there's there's a radio station uh, in Toronto that just featured them. I think it was last week, mm -hmm. you know, and they took like 18 minutes of prime radio time. You know, wow, they played, cool. you know, they played. Yeah. That's pretty amazing, you know, to. Yeah. There's a lot of artists that are struggling to get on radio, you know, yeah. so pe people can recognize the talent. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, I that I respect about the band that it's just like they're they love to live dangerously and they're great players and. They're flexible and they do stuff. They try things in order to improve themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really critical in order to grow. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think they will definitely be bigger. Uh, I, I sense that there's a growth inside the band. So I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah. 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 Uh, just before we wrap it up, how do people get in touch with you if they want to work with you as a producer or engineer? Uh-huh. Well, uh, if you go to my website at uh, www.richardchicky.ca, mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, there's contact info there, uh, and that you know it, there's also stuff that goes over to my Facebook and 
Yeah. You know, I'm I'm pretty easy to uh pretty easy to reach. And uh yeah, that's that's how to get a hold of me. Plus awesome. with guys like you promoting. Thank you. <laughs> yes, no problem. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to hearing the next albums you're involved with, whether on, on the mixing desk or as a producer. All right. Appreciate it, Rodrigo. Thank you very much. Yeah. Amazing work, man. You do great interviews. Thank you. Thank you. I spoke with John uh, not a long ago, not too long ago, with his his solo album. So yeah, yeah. How is it? I haven't heard it yet. Is it good? It's it's great. It's Andy Sneap on the mixing desk. Uh, yeah, Andy's great. Yeah. yeah, Andy's great. You know, it's. Uh, I I hope that they. I know that they. Uh, uh, I I think they're working on a new record right now. So I think there's. Uh, I think they're going to do some. Uh, hopefully, they do some great stuff again. You know, I mean, they're yeah. such an incredible band. Are you going to be involved with it as no, well? No, no, I'm not involved with this record. Uh-huh. No, I'm not involved with this record. But the, uh, you know, they're in good hands. I think uh, uh, Jim Meslin is uh, tracking it. I, I don't know who's, uh, I don't know who's mixing it. Mm -hmm. But you know, with COVID, you know, I don't yeah. think I don't think Labrie's heading down at all. Uh, I don't think Labrie is heading down to uh, to yeah. work on it. And uh, you know, I, I think that the the band is, uh, you know, it's great that they've been together for so long and they're still. Uh, you know, changing and adapting according to, you know, how the band's feeling creatively. Cause yeah. I think that's, you know, they're still growing after what th is 30 years? 30 something. Yeah. 30 something. Excuse yeah. me. 30, 30 yeah. something years and they're still yeah. growing and changing. That's amazing. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Thank you for the perspectives on Rush and Dream Theater and everything. I'm a huge fan. So yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Man. Well, hopefully we'll stay in touch. We will. I will send you the link once this is published, and uh, if you can share it on your social media, that would be great. Fantastic. Okay. We we'll look forward awesome. to it. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. Have a good night. Cheers, Rodrigo. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Just a reminder that you can check out uh, this interview on many formats, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Also, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Let's wrap it up with the song Under Control from Pyramid Theorem's new album Beyond the Exosphere. Stay safe and see you next time.